London Calling, London Walks Connecting. London Walks here with today's London Fix. Story time, history time. Mr. Tennyson, he dead. I'm, of course, paraphrasing ever so slightly. Joseph Conrad's unforgettable line, Mr. Kurtz, he dead, in Conrad's great novella, Heart of Darkness. So for our purposes today, it's not Kurtz. It's the greatest Victorian poet of them all, Tennyson. And he's not Mr. Tennyson. He's Lord Tennyson, Lord Alfred Tennyson. You know, with some of these poets whose star is a supernova, the resonances aren't just in their verse, their incomparable lines. They're also to be found in the biographical penumbra. So the greatest Victorian poet was Alfred Tennyson. Did you catch it? The only English king, alone of all the English kings and queens, to have been given the epithet the Great, was Alfred the Great, who reigned eleven and a half centuries ago. Now for the record, our poetic Alfred the Great, Lord Tennyson, died on the 6th of October, 1892, 131 years ago today. And as long as we're at it, Tennyson died ten years before Conrad's masterpiece, Heart of Darkness, the black heart of which is that undying line, Mr. Kurtz, he dead. Tennyson died ten years before Heart of Darkness crossed the bar and dropped anchor, came ashore, planted its flag in our cultural, psychological, and historical landscape. It's another story, that, but Conrad setting out in that year, 1902, laying bare that rotten core of our imperial endeavors, what they were doing to us as a people, as well as to the people we were sweeping up into the maw of the greatest empire the world had ever known, setting that out side by side with some of the other doings of that year makes for a jaw-dropping exercise. Put those wildly disparate elements into a painting, the heart of which painting is that, Mr. Kurtz, he dead. And you've got a work of art that can only be described as surrealism on steroids. So, for example, in 1902, the United States gets its first movie theater. Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria, we'll be hearing about him again in 1914, in 1902 gets the British Order of the Garter. Theodore Roosevelt, that same year, becomes the first American president to ride in an automobile. The first science fiction film is premiered in Paris in 1902. A newspaper cartoon inspires the first teddy bear in 1902. The first Aswan Dam on the Nile is completed that year. Americans Tallulah Bankhead, Charles Lindbergh, and John Steinbeck are born in 1902 as is their fellow American, Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's. King Edward VII is crowned. Sibelius's Symphony No. 2 premieres. Tenor Enrico Caruso makes the first million-selling recording in 1902. The Australian Public Service is created that year. Cuba gets its independence that year. The London School of Economics opens. Australia becomes the first independent country to grant women the vote at a national level in 1902. And in the heart of darkness, 
somewhere in West Africa, where a British warship was lobbing shells into a continent. Mr. Kurtz, he dead. For me, what Conrad lays bare in that moment, in that line, that's the beginning of the not-so-long-ago-departed, death-drenched 20th century. And in a funny sort of way, that gets us back to 1892, to Mr. Tennyson, he dead. Gets us back there because Tennyson's passing, in many ways, marked the passing of the Victorian sensibility, the Victorian era. Indeed, Tennyson's life was death-haunted, death-shrouded. But whether you look at the man or at his times, his age, it was just the foothills of the horrors that were up ahead. That Mr. Kurtz, he dead, would usher in. So yes, Mr. Tennyson, he dead. On this day in 1892, he wasn't born in London. He didn't grow up in London. He didn't die in London. He did live in London for a time, though. In fact, he has two blue plaques. And, more to the point, London's his permanent resting place. He was buried in Westminster Abbey on October 12th. In Poet's Corner, of course. His grave is next to Robert Browning's and in front of the monument to Chaucer. He was born and grew up in Lincolnshire. Went to Cambridge. Died in Adworth in the Berkshire Downs. He was 84. He'd been the Poet Laureate for 42 years. It was three years and more before a successor was appointed. The idea of abolishing the office of Poet Laureate was seriously mooted when Tennyson died. That in itself was a measure of the sense of national loss. But always you come back to the man and the rack of his life story, his personal torments and losses. His mother gave birth 12 times in 14 years, eight sons and four daughters. Tennyson was the fourth child. One brother died in infancy. Another was addicted to opium and vulnerable to alcohol. Another collapsed into alcoholism. Yet another brother, Edward, succumbed to insanity. And then there was a seventh brother, Septimus, who was given to rising from the hearth rug and introducing himself, I am Septimus, the most morbid of all the Tennysons. And that's without even starting in on the deaths of his parents, his beloved son Lionel, and this almost goes without saying, the death at a very early age of his closest Cambridge friend, Arthur Henry Hallam, the young man who was engaged to Tennyson's sister, Emily. Tennyson and his sister, like the Hallams, of course, were devastated. The tragedy of the young man's death, it came out of the blue, struck down by an apoplexy attack while visiting Vienna. An apparently robust, healthy young man, dead in an hour, in the hotel room he was sharing with his father. Out of the tragedy of Arthur Henry Hallam's death came Tennyson's greatest poem, In Memoriam. Tennyson began the poem just five days after the terrible event. It took him 17 years to finish it and publish it. And like every great artist, Tennyson's experiences and reflections upon life and death find their way into his poetry, transmuted and transfigured, of course. In a reminiscence for their two sons, Tennyson's wife Emily wrote, Many a time has your father gone out in the dark and cast himself on a grave in the little churchyard near, wishing to be beneath it. Tennyson himself wrote, 
When I was about twenty, I used to feel moods of misery unutterable. I remember once in London the realization coming over me of the whole of its inhabitants lying horizontal a hundred years hence. Now it surely only goes part way toward balancing all of the above out, but Tennyson's marriage was very happy. The death of their beloved son Lionel, when he was a very young man, just in his thirties, accepted. But to know a little bit of Tennyson's life story is to understand why Queen Victoria treasured him. She, of course, had suffered the terrible loss of her beloved Albert. And what Tennyson had to say about loss and grief and love and suffering, she took comfort in it. She thought he, of all poets, understood. Now, last resonance. It is somehow beyond perfect that Tennyson should have died at this time of the year. Consider, for example, the great American poet Emily Dickinson's finest poem. For the most part, Emily Dickinson didn't title her poems. They're known by the first line. The first line of this great poem is, There's a certain slant of light. Now, for Emily Dickinson, it's a certain slant of light on a winter afternoon. But it could just as easily be an October afternoon. We're all aware now, thanks to the slant of light, that the year is dying. Here's the poem, and as you listen to it, think of Tennyson dying in the slant of light of this day, October 6th. Given everything about him, it couldn't have been more fitting that he died on October 6th. There's a certain slant of light, winter afternoons, that oppresses like the heft of cathedral tunes. Heavenly hurt it gives us. We can find no scar but internal difference where the meanings are. None may teach it, any, tis the seal despair, an imperial affliction sent us of the air. When it comes, the landscape listens, shadows hold their breath. When it goes, tis like the distance on the look of death. And to end a Tennyson poem, it's a kind of requiem, Okay, a Tennyson poem and a Tennyson fact. After Shakespeare, Tennyson is the most quoted poet in the Oxford Book of Quotations. Now there's a rich, evocative fact for you. The poem is Crossing the Bar. It's late Tennyson. It was written exactly three years before his death. He wrote it while he was crossing the Solent. He showed it to his son. His son said, That is the crown of your life's work. Tennyson said, it came in a moment. A few days before his death, Tennyson said to his son, Mind you, put my crossing the bar at the end of all editions of my poems. The Solent is a strait of the English Channel between the mainland and the northwestern coast of the Isle of Wight. The bar is, of course, a sandbar. That's the literal sense. The figurative sense is death. In departing this life, the soul crosses the bar, heads out into the sea, into death, into those unknown, uncharted waters. Here are the last two stanzas of the poem, perfect in every way for Tennyson, for his death, and especially his death at this time of the year. Twilight and evening bell, and after that, the dark. And may there be no sadness of farewell when I embark. For though from out our bourne of time and place the flood may bear me far, I hope to see my pilot face to face when I have crossed the bar.
You've been listening to the London Walks podcast, emanating from www.walks.com, home of London Walks, London's signature walking tour company, London's local, time-honored, fiercely independent, family-owned, just the right size walking tour company. And as long as we're at it, London's multi-award-winning walking tour company, indeed, London's only award-winning walking tour company. And here's the secret. London Walks is essentially run as a guides cooperative. That's the key to everything. It's the reason we're able to attract and keep the best guides in London. You can get schlubbers to do this for 20 pounds a walk, but you cannot get world-class guides, let alone accomplished professionals. It's not rocket science. You get what you pay for. And just as surely, you also get what you don't pay for. Back in 1968, when we got started, we quickly came to a fork in the road. We had to answer a searching question. Do we want to make the most money? Or do we want to be the best walking tour company in the world? You want to make the most money, you go the schlubber's route. You want to be the best walking tour company on the planet. You do whatever you have to do to attract and keep the best guides in London. You want them guiding for you, not for somebody else. Bears repeating, the way we're structured, a guides cooperative, is the key to the whole thing. It's the reason for all those awards. It's the reason people who know go with London Walks. It's the reason we've got a big following, a lively, loyal, discerning following. Quality attracts quality. It's the reason we're able, uniquely, to front our walks with accomplished, in many cases, distinguished professionals. By way of example, Stuart Purvis, the former editor and subsequently CEO of Independent Television News, and Lisa Honan, who had a distinguished career as a diplomat. Lisa was the governor of St. Helena, the island where Napoleon breathed his last and, some say, had his penis amputated. Napoleon didn't feel a thing. If things the mot juste, he was dead. Stuart and Lisa, both of them CBEs, are just a couple of our headline acts. Or take our Ripper Walk. It was created and was guided for many years by Britain's most distinguished crime historian, Donald Rumbelow. In the words of the Jack the Ripper A to Z, Donald is internationally recognized as the leading authority on Jack the Ripper. He's emeritus now, but he's still the guiding light on our Ripper Walk. He curates it. He mentors our Ripper Walk guides. They've got questions. They get answers from Donald Rumbelow. The London Walk's all-star team of guides includes a former London mayor. It includes the former chief music critic for the Evening Standard. It includes barristers, doctors, geologists, museum curators, archaeologists, historians, criminal defense lawyers, Royal Shakespeare Company actors, a bevy of MVPs, Oscar winners, people who've won the big one, the Guide of the Year Award. Well, you get the idea. As that travel writer famously put it, 
If this were a golf tournament, every name on the leaderboard would be a London Walks guide. And as we put it, London Walks guides make the new familiar and the familiar new. And on that agreeable note, come then, let us go forward together on some great London walks. And that's by way of saying, good Londoning one and all. See you next time.